Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Welcome to episode 64 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Join, as always, my co-host, Mary, a woman who is still upset to this day that she didn't get a pony. I am just Darren, <laughs> a guy who has been described more as the back end of a horse than the front. Hey, Mary, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing great. Fantastic. Fantastic. It is a... End of the week, almost coming around, coming around the bend. So we are looking forward to um, a fantastic weekend here in a few days, and mm-hmm. looking forward to a whole bunch of fun stuff. So how are you? I'm good, and you were right about the pony thing. Horses oh, are I one of my favorite animals. So how are you? A pony for you, Mayor. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> no, it's been good. It's been pretty good. It's been it's been a good day. It's been fun. It's been an interesting week. So. We're going to have some fun today. We're going to do the yep. libations here in a second. But we, you know what we're going to talk about today, Mara? We changed, literally, we changed horses. See what I did we there? Did. After we decided on the, on the the episode. So as you know, not every Civil War horse is the same type of horse, of course, of course. So we're going to talk <laughs> about a whole bunch of different types. But before we do, I'm going to ask you a very important question. And that question is, of course. As long, it better not be a math question. No, it's what is wrong with you? No. What are you drinking? <laughs> I am drinking Harvest Ale by Muskoka Brewery, which is, um, it's a pale ale, and it's very, very good from brewery probably about four hours from me. And I am drinking it out of my General Mead mug, because tonight, uh, one of the horses I'm going to talk about is Old Baldy, who was General Mead's horse. Okay. Well, what are you drinking, so, Darren? Oh, you actually asked I me this did, time. because I'm well, nice. Anyway. I'm drinking Four Score Beer Company. It's called Can Conditioned Pub Ale. It's got Abraham Lincoln on it, Mary. He's the guy with the hat president we talked about the dude that was shot in the theater yeah yeah you have heard it cool okay and i'm drinking from my run with the winter mug nice uh, by john laro so i'm gonna represent him again so his his stuff is so so good you can check him out on his uh his page on red bubble etc etc he actually does some really good tweets too on um Mm -hmm. on on twitter as well like some threads about just different they're almost like battles and events in the civil war that nobody talks about so that's pretty cool that he's uh, kind of telling people about that stuff too. And yeah, and he's got a oh, well. Tilden shirt on his uh, Redbubble page and Oliver Otis Howard. Well, there's the mention. There it is. There it is. Yeah. Anywho, so today we're going to talk about horses. It's horses and mules, but we're going to focus on the horses today. Um, horses were the lifeblood of both the Union and Confederate armies in the American Civil War. They were used to transport artillery, wagons, supplies, as well as the obvious use by the uh, by both cavalry. So. We're going to talk about that and how important they were. The Union used over 3.4 million horses during the Civil War, as well as about 800,000 or so from Missouri and Kentucky. Northern soldier, northern horses were mostly farm animals. They were mm-hmm. more geared towards moving supplies and dragon stuff than really running around. Versus the Confederates had about 1.7 million. And southern horses were more bred for racing. They were race yep. horses. And they were better suited for use by the rebel cavalry, which it's no surprise, especially at the beginning of the war, but the Confederate cavalry was so much better because their horses were better. Well, yeah, that that, on. and because the the men who were riding the horses, they were their own horses, so they already had that kind of relationship or bond. Like you need to have that with the horse in order to make it effective. That's just my opinion on it from from what I've read. Whereas you know, Union cavalry had their horses supplied to them, so they didn't always have that bond with them um but you know confederate cavalry are bringing the horses that they've had for sometimes quite a few years so they know Mm -hmm. the horse and rider know each other quite well and they know kind of the like just Mm -hmm. you know different characteristics that the the horse might have so there's just that that's definitely why they were more effective i think well i think they can certainly not only read each other's minds but certainly after a while it's like it's like having a pet dog for a while you know exactly what the 
you know, the routines are and you know exactly mm-hmm. what's expected of you. You know, we'll talk about this, how care of these horses, you know, for something that was so important as a horse, care was pretty mediocre at best. I mean, people mm-hmm. care for people was not good, let alone horses. No. Veterinarians for the most part were non-existent. Um, the Union Army only had six vets in the entire army. I mean, that, that's, ain't that's gonna crazy. Do it, right? So the soldiers were left to care for these animals by themselves. They had to provide horseshoes. They had to provide blankets. They had to provide any kind of care their horse would need. Feeding horses was an endless problem. Oh, my you know, God. They needed, so, um, like, what was it, 14 pounds of grain a day pounds, and 10 pounds four, of hay was what was recommended. And you had to have the supply right. trains to carry that as well. But the generals, though, didn't see the importance of this. William T. Sherman, you've heard of him. He took that long walk to the beach in Georgia, ended up in Savannah that time. Yep. Right? His dating profile He's, says enjoys long walks. He does. He does. <laughs> um, he said every opportunity at a halt during a march was used to cut grass, wheat, or oats and extraordinary care should be taken of the horses upon uh, which everything depends. So the generals knew it. They understood. Now, early in the war, we, you know, we mentioned care was not good. Mm-hmm. It was pretty awful. There were 250,000 Union horses that were kept in dirty stables all around Washington, D.C. They were underfed. They had little or no care. They weren't groomed. None of them could talk at all. No. So they not had even to Mr. Dead. They had to just take it and you know, move on from it. To your point, the Rebs had to they supplied their own horses and they need to supply their own horses. If you were in the Confederate cavalry and your horse was injured or killed, you have to get a new one on your own. Mm-hmm. So if you couldn't afford one and they were going for like 100, 150 bucks a pop back then, which is a lot yep. of money, chances are you're going to get transferred to the infantry from the cavalry, which yep. is significantly more dangerous and a lot more walking. So you wanted to make sure they took care of these horses. So when you see these these thieves stealing horses and and raiding things that that was that was they were gold well the one thing that i learned about the you know kind of the southern cavalry and this and and i just thought of this now too you know i think this goes back to the differences between north and south north is a more industry-based economy you're not going to have that kind of bond or connection with the animals right whereas in the south you know horseback riding was probably a pastime because the economy slave-based Unfortunately, you don't have to go to work, right? But there's that kind Mm -hmm. of, I don't know, I think it's a difference between North and South. But the one thing that I did learn um, in doing the research for this was that sometimes, especially on the Southern side of things, the cavalry would, um, when they recognized that their horses were tired, they would get off their horses and they would walk them to give their backs Mm -hmm. a rest. Yeah, there's no question. And so as the war went on, you know, jumping, not stay on schedule with this, but Mm -hmm. by 1864, these armies have been all over the place at this point. So a lot of the places they would stop to camp were basically barren, mm-hmm. right? The supplies. Yeah. The supplies had to, be, had to be brought into the camps at this point in a lot of cases. A lot of times those supplies were raided or stolen by raiders, uh, Union or cavalry. And those horse rations we mentioned, which is about 25, you know, 25 pounds a day of hay or grain, yeah. that was cut down to less than five pounds a day. It's so you know, sad. That, that's the equivalent of maybe having a couple of almonds all day to eat as a human. Yeah. And I mean, and- the soldiers are going through the same thing. You know, you think back to that scene in Lincoln where Lee goes to surrender to Grant and they have Traveler in that scene. The horse Traveler was, you could see his ribs in that scene. I remember that. He looked very emaciated. And that was to, I think, portray just the state of things. You know, even the horses are starving. And you know, the one thing about this is like, you know, the cavalry, when they stopped, I remember reading this about Nathan Bedford Forrest, he always told his men, you look after your horses first, because that's your mode of transportation. Oh, that was everything. I mean, it was the, think about Jeeps, today's military, exactly. boats in the Navy, your yep. horses, this was it. The other side of the coin is the water. A horse mm-hmm. needs four to nine gallons of water per day, 
which is why most of these battles took place along waterways, yeah. right? Because they had to camp, they had to find a place not only to, to water their own men and have water to cool down their weapons like, like the artillery. You know, nine gallons a day is a lot when you think about some of these horses and some of these battles, right? The problem, you know, with these, going into battles real quick with this, you, you look at, you know, human care, the triage system had just yeah. kind of started. Care for horses and battles was, was, forget it, okay? Despite how important these horses were, the Union and the Confederates were so bad at tending to injuries of these horses when they happened. I guess it was just surprising because how important they were. They were literally the lifeblood of their armies. Yeah. When you look at how important they were to the battles, people don't realize how important they are. An artillery piece, one gun with a caisson in the limber, requires 14 horses to move them. Yeah. 14. The artillery horses were gods. They were they were on oh, and they had the hardest job because they right. they were right there in the thick of it. And those were what the sharpshooters in either side would try and take out. You, if you take out their horses, you are taking mm-hmm. away their ability to move those artillery. And the thing about it is, the sharpshooters got very good at that. So yep. it, 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 they say a thousand pound horse. It takes between five and seven mini balls to take one down. Okay. Yeah. But as time went on, as the war went on, soldiers with really good shots could kill a horse with far less. And we saw that. Ream Station, Battle of Petersburg, yep. Winfield Scott Hancock, his his last you know real battle mm-hmm. that he had in August of eighteen sixty four. There were troops from the tenth Massachusetts Battery. They took zero casualties, okay? In the first five minutes of that battle, they lost 30 horses. Oh, my God. That That's Fuck. a show what, what, the pro, what the priority of targeting yeah. was at the beginning of these battles. The first goal you did was take out the horses. Once you took out the horses, then you could go take the care of the people. Yep. And then you went and got the guns. That's how it worked. So you think about that. The 10th Mass, not a single one. And then, then you end up with 30 horses in five minutes. And that's gone. a huge loss because then you've got to go back uh-huh. to Washington and say, like, I've lost this many horses and they've got to get those horses to you so you can move your artillery. Right. That That is going on unless, like, the Confederates have moved it and fucking taking them from you, right? No, but I mean, but as, as the war went on, care for these horses began to take on it's such an increasing importance yep. for that reason. So they realized they had to start to find a way to take care of these horses. So both the North and the South began to build infirmaries to care them in. Mm-hmm. Kind of like mini horse hospitals. Yep. You know, little nurses, the whole deal of you know, ponies walking around. <laughs> you know, they have the whole thing, right? <laughs> little, so, I just pictured like a little pony, like one of those mini horses dressed up like a nurse. I mean like <laughs> a little brony? Yeah, brony. God. <laughs> Going to look after like old Baldy who's in a bed all because he got wounded again. <laughs> anyway, oh but but the thing about it though is that the, the doctors for the most part had zero equestrian medical knowledge yeah. they didn't know what the hell it was if you were a doomed horse or had a serious injury you you were kind of you know, it wasn't too, too, it was pretty good. Some so, of these horses overcame some pretty horrific injuries, which, which well, well, we're going to talk about that later on in the episode. Well, it's true. But what happened was, is just like people, they can get, in, they can get disease. And that was a big yeah. part of this too. So when horses got diseases, it spread amongst the herd faster than it takes for you to give me the finger on an average day. That's how quickly <laughs> these things went, right? So one disease that was really bad was a disease called glanders, mm-hmm. okay? Glanders was a, was a spread to the horse population very, very quick in both armies. It was caused by crappy water is really what it was, okay? Um, they would drink this, this contaminated crappy water and the horses got sick. It was extremely contagious. It got into the horse's lungs 
and it really affected their breathing. One of the final symptoms before a horse would die is it would discharge this really this yellowy nasal discharge oh, crap God. out of its nose, right? Mm. And that was usually the last final symptom before the horse would die. Infected animals with this, they had to be taken down because how fast it spread. So there were two Confederate physicians, a guy named John J. Terrell and John R. Page. They're the ones who actually discovered the source of this disease was the water. And so what they did is they provided clean water and they gave more ventilation. It really cut down that disease of this glanders, especially in the Confederate Army for a while until a con. The other problem you had is when the horses died Mm -hmm. is what to do with them, right? I mean, there was no glue factories back then. So you had to find (laughs) something to do with them, right? Disposing of dead horses was a real problem in a gigantic dare I say, Herculean task, right? Yeah. Uh, especially on the battlefield. Now, you remember in all those pictures that Matthew Brady took at Gettysburg? Yeah. In okay. So all those dead horses everywhere, they started to emerge and, and just show the carnage wasn't just limited to men. Yeah. And people started to see these dead horses everywhere. At the Battle of Gettysburg, there were 40,000 horses. Okay, and it was an estimated that there were 3,000 killed at the Battle of Gettysburg, right? To deal with these dead horses, with these special horse burial detail things that were created. Uh, and we're going to talk about Meade's army because the Confederates had gone and it was the Union that was left yeah. to deal with all the stuff, right? They created these, these horse burial details to dispose of these thousands of dead horses that littered the entire battlefield. You can only imagine how awful that must have been, right? Their first task was to cut off the stiff legs. That was the first task. It'd stick right up in the air, right? And then what they would have to do is they'd have to drag these thousand-pound carcasses into these large holes and cover them with soil. Now, you could only imagine how long this must have taken, right? And in that heat, it's July in the heat, too. It's hot. They're worried about disease and everything that's going on with that. So they realized it was it was this was taking way too freaking long to do. So they decided what they had to do because of the stench and the fear of, of disease. They had to burn them, right? Yeah. So what they would do is they put these gigantic piles of horses and light them on fire. They would have, the citizens of Gettysburg would help. Confederate prisoners were forced to do it. One local Gettysburg resident said the odor from the burning horse flesh smelled like an escape from a hateful charnel house. Okay. Oh, my God. I know there was one, sorry, I got to mention again, Howard, in his memoirs, he wrote after one battle, I can't remember if it's Eastern or Western Theater, but just seeing the horses and then piled up and then burning and the smell was just something that would never leave him. You know, like no. he always remembered what that was like seeing these poor animals and what they'd been through. If you want to have learn a really gruesome, painfully detailed story of this part of the Battle of Gettysburg, you can actually take a tour there's a place off Steinware Avenue that you can actually take this post-aftermath tour and they tell you all about this. It's, it's awful. Many of these horses, finally, they was left behind to rot. They just, just couldn't deal yeah. with it anymore, right? Lydia Leister, her house was used as, as, as Meade's headquarters over yep. there on Tannytown Road, right? She had 17 dead horses that remained on her property after the army left. Okay, and most of them appear in Brady's pictures. You can see the pictures, yep. right? These 17 horses took two years to rot. Two years they sat in her yard. Oh, okay? my God. And when they did finally vanish, the skin, she had 750 pounds of horse bones piled up in her yard. Two years, okay? The injured horses at Gettysburg, the injured ones, okay? Those that were not injured too, too badly were the last to receive care. Yeah. Right. The ones that, just like people. I mean, it's a triage thing for mm-hmm. the most part. And those horses were taken to those horse horse hospitals, horse doctors, whatever the hell you want to call them, these temporary vet hospitals, yep. right? Those that were mortally wounded 
unfortunately were destroyed one shot to the head that's that's what happened to them mm. i hate to say it there were some soldiers who actually chose to stay behind and help the horses instead of leaving with them with the army private hezediah weeks no relation wow he, <laughs> that's so he, cool he was, he was a blacksmith from baltimore maryland a regiment called the patops patops yeah. guards right and he stayed behind after the battle to help tend to these injured horses he would assist them in feeding and putting bandages on them he was just he liked horses, wanted to stay behind and help the horses. These horses belonged to the army, and the army didn't forget that. So when they were brought back to good health, they would be returned to service. Mm -hmm. That was kind of how it worked because these, these things were a premium. If they were unserved fit and they weren't okay, they'd be destroyed. If they were okay, but they just couldn't serve anymore for whatever reason, they were actually sold to the citizens of Gettysburg. That, that's what happened. So some citizens who took care of the injured horses tried to adopt them themselves without permission they were promptly arrested by the army for horse thieving stealing horses so that would be me um, i would be like hey come live at my house but, God, imagine. <laughs> but these, hor <laughs> these horse pen things they created for these injured horses were set up you know for the army really to evaluate the status yeah. of these horses so they put keep them together and kind of judge how it was and to see if the horse's recovery to make that determination of what the horse's ultimate fate was those deemed unrecoverable which after gettysburg there were hundreds were destroyed right there were over a hundred horses that were herded to a thicket by the spangler farm and shot in the head and their horse skeletons remained on that site for about 20 years the spangler farm in gettysburg unfortunately mm -hmm. so it's a sad sad story you know yeah Many, many though were recoverable. I mean, they were okay. By mid-August 1863, ads started to appear in local newspapers for horse sales of these wounded horses at Gettysburg. So you can pick up the newspaper and see there was an ad that said, Quartermaster Smith advertises the sale of 350 condemned U.S. horses at Gettysburg on Monday instant. Sale to be day-to-day, -day, the terms U.S. cash only. These rescues, which is what, really what they were, would end up working on the farms where the battle took place. A yep. lot of times they'd be pulling plows. They'd discover horse bodies, human mm. bodies, all kinds of stuff. So at the end of the day, if you really think about it, these poor horses really were the real innocent victims of this war, right? We talked before about all the dead horses and dying horses at the peach orchard, right? Yeah. When we talk about Barksdale, how many there were, how sad it was for these Confederates. E.P. Alexander talks about in his diary about yeah. how sad it was to see these horses looking up morally wounded with these sad looks in their faces. Like, like, what are you doing? Well, they had, they and, didn't have a choice, right? And like, they're yeah. kind of like these unsung heroes. And I know Sherman writes about it. You know, there was one time where he went, he wrote a couple sentences about the men that died in this one particular battle. And then he wrote for a paragraph and a half to his wife about the suffering of the horses, you know, so these men are affected by the deaths of these animals. Well, I mean, they're the same people, especially the Confederates. Yeah. When they had these horses from, from when they were young or when they got, and they really had, had a strong bond with them of, of watching these horses killed. I mean, some of these, we talk about people like Nathan Bedford Forrest had 30 horses shot from under him. Yep. Now I'm not sure how, relationship he had with these horses but <laughs> you can imagine you can imagine talk about Claiborne with Dixie that was his favorite horse and he he didn't like horses but Dixie was his favorite horse and he and Dixie was shot out from under him at Perryville he wasn't just shot from under him he was exploded, exploded. yeah he got hit with an artillery and literally just exploded and Claiborne was thrown off the horse and walked away with just an injury to his ankle as we start to talk about some of these um these generals there's some really I would say there's a lot of famous horses. There's a whole bunch of famous horses throughout the Civil War, and a lot of them have some really, really cool names. And we've kind of picked out a couple to talk about, which is kind of some of our favorite stories about some of the horses. So, yeah. 
So I'll let, I'll let you kick this one off. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to start us off with Stonewall Jackson's horse, which I'm sure everybody has heard of Little Sorrel before. Little Sorrel's story is quite, it's an interesting one. May 1861, Harper's Ferry, Stonewall Jackson seizes six train cars. One of them is carrying horses for the Union Army. From these horses, Jackson ends up purchasing two. A large one for himself, which he apparently called Big Sorrel, who was this beautiful black stallion, and a smaller one he named Fancy, who was actually not really fancy. He was kind of shaggy and unruly, which he intended for his wife, Anna. Well, as it turned out, Big Sorrel was a little bit of a fucking spaz, and spazzy horses and battles don't mix very well. And that was the problem with some of these kind of these thoroughbred horses is, you know, they heard the cannons and stuff, and they would just completely freak out, especially early on in the Civil War. And we've talked about that in a few of our episodes before. Jackson needed a horse that had kind of his level of zen in battle that was able to cope with the noises of the guns, artillery, the shouting, and just the general chaos that goes with these battles. So he decides to try Fancy, which oddly enough, Fancy is also the name of one of General John Reynolds' horses. And Fancy was the horse that he had intended for his wife, Anna. So upon upon riding Fancy, Jackson remarked that being on him was like being rocked in the cradle and that he had a smooth pace and even temper, quite the opposite of the horse that he had been on before. So Jackson ends up changing Fancy's name to Little Sorrel. This becomes, you know, one of the more famous Civil War, like, general and horse. Little Sorrel was almost an extension of Jackson's personality. You know, he's a little bit weird, and so was Jackson, right? And it's going to become, Little Sorrel's going to become Jackson's primary horse until he's wounded at Chancellorsville on May the 2nd, 1863, and then dies on May 10th, 1863. So Little Sorrel, um, just to give a bit of background, was a Morgan horse. And Morgan horses were originally bred in Connecticut. And they the first one was said to have been born around 1850 on the farm of Noah C. Collins in Summers, Connecticut. Every Morgan horse is said to have been a descendant from this, this one sire. So these horses are known for their short legs, their stocky bodies, which is how little Sorrel looked. If you look at pictures, that's how he looks. They're very zen. They're ideal battle horses. They don't freak out at cannon fire. They don't freak out at loud noises. And they're also known for their in- endurance, their quick quickness, and their agility. Now, it's funny, um, you know, when Jackson chooses this horse early in the Civil War, the Union Army eventually, by 1863 is exclusively wants to exclusively deal with these Morgan horses because they figured out that these are the ideal battle horses just because of their endurance they can go for like long like they can go for a long time before they need rest Jackson had one you know for quite a while in the Civil War and during breaks in battle when Jackson was not on little sorrel little sorrel would lay down and have a nap middle of the battle just lay down kid Douglas a member of Jackson's staff had this to say about little sorrel he was a remarkable little horse Such endurance have I never seen in a horse before. We had no horse at headquarters that could match him, and I never saw him show a sign of fatigue. Sounds kind of like, you know, in a way, actually, I was just going to say, that doesn't sound like Jackson because Jackson liked to nap, but then again, so does Little Sorrel. Well, it's funny because, you know, Jackson, he was, you know, Little Sorrel was was Little Sorrel. He was little. So they talked about how the soldiers would laugh at Jackson because he'd have to, you know, he'd have to ride with his, he'd have to pull his stirrups all the way up to his chin. He'd have to ride like a jockey. Yeah. With his horse. And it must have been hilarious. Now, the thing about Sorrel is Little Sorrel, you know, kind of, you know, kind of like Charles Tilton. He got caught twice by the Union. 
he was oh. it was captured two times. We did, right? yeah. You know? He he was. And he kind of had quite the little adventure with, with Stonewall. Oh, he did, and like Sorrel could cover forty miles in one day, and Jackson was so comfortable on him, he would often sleep during these marches. And the Jackson Sorrel duel would make soldiers rally, and it would boost morale. And this is so similar to what we saw with Cedar Creek, with uh, Sheridan and Rienzi. Mm-hmm. The sight of them, the two of them, the two of them almost became together. And just like Jackson Sorrel, this is kind of the equivalent to the Rienzi Sheridan that we see in the Union Army. The ironic thing was that Jackson didn't like the cheering and was actually embarrassed by it. And little Sorrel seemed to to know this. It was said that whenever the Confederates raised loud and friendly noise, the horse would break into a gallop and carry Jackson speedily along. So he knew to just kind of get Jackson away from that situation. And Little Sorrel and Jackson were in many battles together. Manassas was one of the first ones that they were in together. Second Manassas, Kernstown, McDowell, Fort Royal, Winchester, Cross Keys, Port Republic, Cedar Mountain, Harper's Ferry, Antietam, Fredericksburg, Seven Days, and finally Chancellorsville in May of 1863 was their final battle together. This is where, as we know, General Jackson is wounded by friendly fire on May the 2nd, and he ends up having his left arm amputated, and he succumbs to pneumonia on May the 10th. When Jackson was shot, this was said to have been, you know, one of two times that little Sorrel bolted away from him. They end up finding him, some Union soldiers end up finding him, and under flag of truce, they bring him back. Hmm? I don't know how they knew it was Jackson's little Sorrel. Maybe by that point, the reputation had kind of you know, carried on, and they brought him back. It was Jeb Stewart who gave little Sorrel to Jackson's wife, Anna, and she continued to look after him. It's funny, he was a bit of a trickster. She took him to live on her farm that she was on, and he, there was other horses there, and he would sometimes open the gate. He figured out how to undo the latch. He was really, really intelligent. That's the thing with how horses, they're very intelligent creatures. He and all the other horses would get out, and they would kind of like run around and stuff. He went to a lot of like veterans events. They took him there uh-huh. to things like that. And he was very well known in the Civil War and after the Civil War. And he actually ended up at um, one of the veterans' homes. And the veterans were able to go see him and visit him. And it was really probably a good thing for them to be able to see Jackson's horse, Little Sorrel. And he lived to be quite an old age. Sorrel, obviously, you know, he was a rock star after the war. You know, even in the North and the South, in Summers, Connecticut, there's a Little Sorrel Lane you can go on yep. visit. In Connecticut, right? Now, you mentioned how he was famous. As he got older, he, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people would come want to sit on Sorrel and visit yep. Jackson's horse, but but as he got older, they had to have this sling thing to keep him they up. They did, right? Yeah. And what happened? Yeah. You know? One day they put him in the sling, and the sling broke, and he broke his hip. And that was the beginning of the end, right there. Yeah, and he ends up passing away. And it was the, you know, it was veterans that were looking after him at that point. And he was actually, this is, he lived at the Confederate soldiers home in Richmond called Robert E. Lee camp. And he was a pet, absolutely adored by the veterans. And that, that's where this, you know, the sling accident happened. His final hours were not spent alone. He was cared for by the, by the veterans and one in particular stayed by his side. Of old veteran named Tom O'Connell stood by his side during the day and night and slept beside his charge. Like the guy said, he said, until he went over the green fields of some animal heaven to rest in peace and honor. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Or perhaps he found Jackson on the other side of the river. Maybe. Probably a persimmon tree, probably. There you are. Get me down. <laughs> he jumps on Little Sorrel's back. So after the, the death, Little Sorrel's body was given to the taxidermist Frederick Weber and mounted over plastic. And Weber kept Little Sorrel's bones as part of payment, but he later donated them to the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
And this actually angered a lot of Southerners. So you can view Little Sorrel today at VMI. His bones are actually buried at the foot of the, the statue that's there. And Little Sorrel's legacy continues to live today. He's almost as famous as Lee's Traveler. And as you said, he's got a street named after him in Summers, Connecticut. And there's also a few statues showing Stonewall Jackson and Little Sorrel together, including the pumped up on steroids statue as well. But no, this Little Sorrel, I mean, yeah, he's, 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 yeah, you're right. You're right. I think as much as people talk about Lee and Traveler, we're not going to go into the whole Traveler story. Everyone knows that story. But, yeah. but it's, it's just, um, he's one I think that's, it's, it's certainly beloved, you know. Outlived his, outlived his master, obviously. Yep, yep. And there's a few horses that outlive their masters for sure. But yeah, Little Sorrel lived to be quite an age for a horse. He was probably, I think he was around 11 the time that Jackson got him. And he would have been well into his 30s by the time he had the sling accident, which is really sad, you know, but he just couldn't stand up and veterans wanted to see him. The other thing they would do too is they would pluck his hairs out of his tail when he was at fairs mm-hmm. and stuff back when they could actually take him to fairs. But he got to the point where he could only be in a stable. Certainly had a hell of a run. Mary. He did. I think you've got a horse story for us next, don't you? Oh, okay. absolutely. To talk about our old friend Turner Ashby. Remember him? We talked mm-hmm. about him at Kernstown. So real quick, we'll yeah. talk about his background a little bit in case, in case you know who he is. But known as the Knight of the Valley from Farquhar, Virginia. He's born in 1828, the son of a War of 1812 vet and the grandson of a Revolutionary War veteran. Before the war, he had founded a group called the Mountain Rangers in road to Harpers Ferry, where John Brown, that raid was going on. He always said that the war started then. It didn't wasn't Sumter, it was it was John Brown's raid. That was when it started, according to him. When the war did start, he was part of Stonewall Jackson's militia. Probably hung out with Little Sorrel, who knows? <laughs> at, the, at the outbreak of the so he was he did a lot of Jackson's reconnaissance for him, um, especially during the Valley campaign. He was not a supporter of secession, but he decided to stay loyal to Virginia because and he formed Company A of the Seventh Virginia Cavalry, which he eventually commanded. By 1862, the 7th Cavalry of Virginia was enormous. It had 27 companies, had the reputation of being wild and out of control, as you can imagine. It must have bothered Stonewall. I have to imagine he probably didn't appreciate that too much. (laughs) Ashby's hatred for the North grew and grew and grew. If you remember, especially when his brother Richard was killed and bayoneted by a bunch of Union soldiers. Yeah, I remember that. His horse was named Tom Telegraph, Mary. That was his name, Tom Telegraph. (laughs) It's an amazing name. Right? It was. And he he was a white horse, okay? His horse is one that, that was noticed and admired by many, including their enemies in the Union. And you mentioned before about how these horses had these, you know, they, they, these guys had these horses for years and they just knew each other exactly what each other yep. were going to do. This was one of them. One Union soldier, the Union guy, he writes, Ashby's horse was disciplined like his master for the accomplishment of the most wonderful feats. He will drop to the ground in a flash at the wish of a rider. And rise again as suddenly bound through the woods like he would bound through the woods like a deer, jumping fences with perfect ease. They said on April seventeenth, eighteen sixty-two, at the first Battle of Kernstown and the first Battle of Winchester, a Union cavalry charge against Ashby led to some serious heart hand-to-hand combat. Old Tom Telegraph—that's his name. <laughs> Tom <and> Telegraph. <laughs> he, would, he was during this battle. He's going to be shot in the side, the horse. Okay, and blood is going to come pouring out of him. It's going to hit him right in the ribs. He still, with Ashby on his back, is going to get Ashby out. So he's going to run and jump fences full speed as blood is gushing out of him. He's going to do this as soon as they get to safety. Ashby gets off the horse to check on him. The horse collapses from lack of blood, and he's dying. Ashby, upon the death of the horse, he's going to set. He's going to start petting the horse's mane. He's just sitting there, just they talk about the emotion of it, of him just taking care of his dying horse. Mm-hmm. 
And one of the troopers who watched this horse die with Ashby, you know, massage his mane says, thus the most splendid horseman I ever knew lost the most beautiful war horse I ever saw. Ashby himself would join old Tom Telegraph in death not too long or less than two months later when he was shot and killed with the 13 Pennsylvania Bucktails in uh, the Battle of Goods Farm in Harrisburg, Virginia. Although some say it was friendly fire, who the hell knows? But in either case, that's how he went down. It's interesting was as he was killed, the horse, I mean, um, somebody cut off his hoof. The hoof, if you're interested, Mary, is still is on display at the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond. There was a, uh, like a like a, a druggist, a drugstore guy, ended up with the with the hoof on the on the hoof. You can go and look at today. There's a handwritten note on the hoof, and it says Turner Ashby's white horse horse's hoof shot and killed in a few hours near Newmarket, Virginia, on Valley Pike. Wow. And then next, right, and then next to it, there's a there's a hand drawn picture, and it's on Hankel Dr- Hankel's drugstore letterhead. So that's who it was. It was like a sticker in the corner. It says Hankel's Drugstore, right? And it's a hand-drawn picture of Ashby riding the horse wearing a cape and a big plumed hat and the words under it, Night of the Valley. Oh, that's so cool. So it's pretty cool. So if you're in the area and you want to go check it out, you can go to the the old um, ironworks over there, the site of the Army, the Confederacy Museum, to go check that out. So I thought it was a cool story, not as long as yours, but it's interesting (laughs) that it really shows the parallel about how they kind of shared the same mind at times and how the horse knew, I have to think the horse knew it was dying, still had the wherewithal to get his master up, got the hell, because he just took off. And then as soon as he was safe and he jumped off, he just collapsed and gave up and died. Well, as his, as as Ashby's rubbing him, you know, mm-hmm. talking to him as he's dying. So and I guess it was quite an emotional scene to see because as I mentioned, some one of the soldiers wrote about it. That just goes to show the relationship that the horse and the, the master had for each other in these a- cases. Absolutely. There there is a very strong bond in in some cases between these two horses. And I actually before I go into our story. Um, I have a quote from actually Confederate Army, William A. Brown. He said, my little bay horse had his hind leg nearly torn off by a piece of shell that seemed to burst six feet in front of my face. At the order to retire, I remounted him and his last act of service was to carry me out of danger. As the faithful animal stood there bleeding and shivering in pain and I powerless to help him in return, I could not prevent the unmanly moisture in my eyes. And when we drove off and left him, I could not have felt it more keenly had I been leaving a wounded human friend. So these guys, especially in the Confederate Army, not to discount the, the, the soldiers and the relationship that their generals had with them and the men had with them in the Union Army, but the Confederate Army, there is a especially strong bond, especially early in the war, because these are animals some of them have had since they were boys. And when they lose them, they really do feel it. And when you're in the cavalry, you have to have a horse that, that you can read that and that can read you. And the generals had primary mounts, and I'm sure the cavalry had their primary mounts too. Uh-huh. Lee's primary mount was Traveler. His secondary was, I think, Lucy Long. And Sherman had Sam and Duke, and I recently found out one named Lexington as well. And Grant had his primary mounts and his secondary mounts and all that. You have a mount that, um, and I'm going to tell a f- kind of a funny story in my next one about Meade, about what happens when you're not on your primary mount uh-huh. and, and what can happen. Oh, it's, it's during a battle. So, what, so why don't you give me one more good story? Our next story is Old Baldy, General Meade's horse. Um, so Baldy was a bright bay horse, so kind of, kind of rusty reddish color, and he had a white face, and he's got kind of just a bit of white just above each hoof. So he begins his Civil War career at the first battle of Bull Run as the horse of Major General Hunter, and he was probably about six years old at this point, the horse, not General Hunter. He was wounded at first Bull Run, and this is going to be the first of many times that Baldy is wounded during the Civil War. He's wounded up to 14 times 
during his Civil War yeah. career. The horse obviously survives, but he never goes back to General Hunter. Meade ends up buying the horse for $150, and because of the horse's white face, Meade calls him Old Baldy, or just Baldy. Now, it's funny, soon after Meade gets this horse, he writes his wife, and he's like, yeah, well, I don't have the greatest horses in the world. Like, basically, Hunter broke this one I'm on now, Baldy. So their relationship didn't really start off the greatest. He's kind of reluctant, but he still spends $150 to buy him. But then Meade starts to become quite attached to him. Baldy becomes his primary mount during the Civil War. The staff wasn't too fond of the horse, though, because he had a very strange pace and he was hard to keep up with. So his walk was a little bit faster than the average horse's walk. So they had to get their horses to go a little bit faster to keep up with him. Baldy and Meade are in many different battles together. They're in Drainsville in December of 1861, which is a Union victory. Seven days. Second Manassas, where Baldy ends up badly wounded in his right leg. South Mountain, and Antietam. At Antietam, he's wounded in the neck. He's left for dead, but later found grazing. You know, just he's got this neck wound and he's grazing. So he's such a like, you almost like Mead. He's very resilient. He just, he's like, oh, I'm just going to eat some grass and wait for someone to come look after me. And someone did care for him. And he, he comes back for Fredericksburg and he's at Chancellorsville as well. So on June the 28th, 1863, Meade is given command of the Army of the Potomac just days before the Battle of Gettysburg is fought. July the 2nd, 1863, a bullet passes through Meade's right pant leg and into Baldy's stomach. And for the first time ever, according to Meade, Baldy refuses to move forward. And Meade said, Baldy is done for this time. This is the first time his, he has refused to go forward under fire. Immediately, Meade has to dismount and get a different horse. So Meade is actually quite worried about this, about Baldy, and he writes to his wife on July the 5th, Baldy was shot again, and I feel fear he will not get over it. So clearly Meade at this point on July the 5th, after the battle has happened, does not know what Baldy's fate is going to be. On July the 8th, he writes his wife, old Baldy is still living and apparently doing well. The ball passed within half an inch of, of my right thigh, and it passed through the saddle and entered Baldy's stomach. I did not think he could live, but the old fellow has such a wonderful tenacity of life that I hope he will. So you can see kind of this bond that they have together that Meade wants him to live because this is his primary mount. Uh -huh. The primary mounts are, you know, the general and the horse know each other very well. And it was in 1864 that Meade decides to, to retire Baldy. And during the Overland campaign, Baldy was struck in the ribs by a shell at the Weldon Railroad, and it was after this that Meade took him out of service. He wrote his wife on April the 24th. Yesterday, I sent my orderly with old Baldy to Philadelphia. He will never be fit again for hard service, and I thought he was entirely to better care than he could be given on the march. You know, Meade's recognizing this horse has been through hell with me, uh -huh. and it's time to just let him rest. So he lives in a farm outside Philadelphia. And then eventually moved to a place called Metal Bank Farm, where he, he lives there for several years. And Meade maintains a close relationship with Baldy after the Civil War. And one source describes them as being absolutely inseparable. When he was still fighting in the Civil War, Meade would often ask about Baldy in letters to his wife. He, he said, where is he and how is he getting on? And on July 7th, he wrote, 1864, he wrote to his wife, Marguerite, I am glad to hear the good news about Baldy, as I am very much attached to the old brute. Meade would ride him in several Civil War memorial parades. And the other thing they did too is they would often go riding together around Philadelphia. And when Meade passes away, Baldy is still alive. During his funeral, Baldy is the riderless horse that is in the funeral procession. And Baldy passes away a few years after that. He, they actually have to put him down with poison, sadly. But, and this is the creepy part of the story. It's kind of godfatherish. They bury him and then they dig up his body and they cut off his head and his head 
became part of the old old Baldy Round Table. You can still see it. it's mounted on a plaque. It's it's really fucking creepy, but you can still see it. The one thing that Mead and Baldy did though is they went riding together. So sometimes Mead and Baldy would ride around Philadelphia together with with Mead's daughters, and sometimes they would go off on their own and just ride in the countryside. And I think that was a like a thing for Mead as much as it was Baldy, the shared experience of going through something so horrific that Mead could go be with him and just ride and kind of forget about that. It's like getting together with your soldier buddies. I think some of these generals, the horses that survived the war, they would go just ride them because they'd had that shared experience that nobody else got. And the horses knew them so well at that point. Like you think about it, how many hours are you spending on that horse? How many hours did Mead spend on Baldy? And it like that is like Mead and Baldy is my absolute favorite Civil War horse story. Just that relationship, how it started off rather reluctantly. Mead's writing to to his wife saying, well, he's kind of been broken by Hunter, but you know what, I'll take him. And oh, yeah, I just spent 150 bucks on him. It's like, dude, you probably like him if you're spending 150 bucks on him, right? To this one where he's like, I, I'm quite attached to the old brute. But the funny Mead story I have to tell is actually about July the 2nd at Gettysburg. And it has to do with Pleasanton. Mead's got to ride out to the peach orchard and he does doesn't have a mount. And Pleasanton's like, oh, you can take mine. And the one thing they don't do is they don't talk horse. Cavalry horses are very different from the horses the generals ride. The the cavalry guys have very different means of dealing with their horses so they don't that they don't bolt. And anyway, so Meade is out there talking to Sickles and the artillery starts going. And Meade goes to kind of rein in Pleasanton's horse the same way he would Baldy. Well, Pleasanton's horse ends up just fucking bolting with meat on it. <laughs> yeah, he's, 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 re- he's getting right for the Confederate lines. Like he's going right for the Confederate lines. He was, a, you know, he was a, he was a double agent horse, Mary. He was. <laughs> But I just thought that was like as bad, like it's like that's really risky for Bede, but that is just so funny because he went to do the same thing he would have done for Baldy and the horse just like fucking bolts. And it was something to do with the type, like just the type of harness they would have on the horse mm-hmm. that it was a little bit different uh, between what the cavalry, would, between what Pleasanton would, was using and what Meade was accustomed to with Baldy and how they would hold the reins and how they would start to rein them in. And anyway, this horse just fucking bolted. And I thought that was a great example of how like the when you think you know the horse and Meade's on a different horse and he doesn't know it, probably he's not even thinking he's having to deal with sickles, <laughs> you know, what he's done. And he's on a different horse. And I just I thought that was a really funny story about well, well you, know. you you find you find your horse and you just love it. I mean, you yeah. look at Joe Hooker had his horse Lookout, right? Yeah, he got he ended up getting a Chattanooga and he named after that famous battle. He well, adored were, that horse. Yeah, seventeen hand, a big horse. Horse, you can actually see a statue of him in, in the city hall in Boston, Mary. Mm-hmm. Up here, you can see old Joe Hooker on uh, on his horse. And some of these some of these guys had great names. I mean, obviously George McClellan had a horse in Kentuck. I'm going to guess yeah. was not a speed horse. Probably never won the Kentucky Derby. Um, he also had a horse, a black horse named Bums. So I don't know what that's all about. It's even ooh, ooh. Okay. Uh, Benjamin Butler had a horse called Old Almond Eye. That's what he, that's what he wow. called him. So, so there was a whole bunch of ones. Phil Carney, obviously, you know, he had a bunch. You know, he had Moscow, and then he had um, he had Decatur, then he had Bayard, and they all. Yeah, so Bayard he, was he the one that he, he was killed on. Yeah, Chantilly. I'm trying to make it. You know, he, he got savannahed hard okay he certainly did he's all his problems are behind him you know <laughs> but i mean but it, the point is you see these guys and they find their horse they have that kinship with right yeah you know we mentioned lee with traveler and uh, i guess old lucy too for that matter you know jeb stewart had virginia 
right? And all these famous horses that they all tend to ride. It, it was that it was that comfort. Now Grant's had about a thousand horses. Right? Oh my God! And his his favorite ended up being Cincinnati who Cincinnati was given to him after the Battle of Chattanooga. And it's funny, Cincinnati was the son of the fastest thoroughbred at the time mm-hmm. in the U.S. called Lexington. And mm-hmm. one thing I found out recently was that General Sherman was given the brother of Cincinnati, so also the son of Lexington. And Sherman called him mm-hmm. Lexington. And this was the horse that the the source I heard, he rode into Atlanta. Oh, cool. He had Rondi and he had Kangaroo and he yep. had Fox and he had Jeff Davis. Jeff Davis. Had, there was a few horses that Confederate Union that, that called their horses Jeff Davis. He had a horse, he had, he had a horse named Jack at one point too, if I remember correctly. Yeah. He might have had a horse with no name. Who can call that band, Mary? <laughs> Who knows, right? Well, but um, Mead had one called right? Mead Secondary Horses called Blackie. There was a whole bunch of good ones. You know, it, it's a lot of fun. Blackjack had had Slasher. Yep. L- Albert Logan. Sidney Johnson okay. had uh, Fire Eater. There, there, was some, there was some good ones. Johnson was ahead of his time with Fire Eater. That should have been Barksdale's horse. I know. Right? Yeah, right? It was not just the word Fire Eater means, but he would just get so mm-hmm. riled up in battle that he would go forth. And that's that's the horse that uh, Johnson was riding when he was killed. And apparently the men... Like the the horse had to be put down after the battle and the men had a tough time picking who was going to go do it because they knew how attached Johnson Mm -hmm. had been to that horse. And of of course, William Bates, I have to enunciate this, his horse was named Black Hawk. So again, so you have to uh, think about that. Thank you for not making me do that one. That would have been a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's fun to talk about these because I think horses are... As much as how important they were, and like we said at the beginning of this, they were the true lifeblood of both armies. I don't think they're really under. I think they're very appreciated. They're very underappreciated. They're the like they're, they're the unsung heroes of the Civil War. There was three million. Oh my of God, them. I, I said that. That's exactly what I said. Yes. Wow, the unsung heroes. But they really, they really were though. You know, and when when a real, you know, when a, a Turner Ashby or one of these guys loses their horse, it is a gigantic, gigantic emotional experience, especially one that you've had, your, you know, for years and you really trust it. It's, it's like losing a, you know, a family member, and that's exactly what it yep. was. And so, but again. There were different types of horses. There's the war horses. There's the dragon horses. There's the cavalry horses. Whatever it is, they um they all there was many types. There are many types, and you know over five million total horses in the American Civil War combined. Fifty um, percent casualties. Yep. Right. They lost that many. So you think of how many horses. Um, were put down and were killed in battle or so died of disease as well. Like they were. Yeah. The the horses yeah. were taken from the same things that the the men were. Be it a wound in battle or a disease or like just starvation as well without the horses there's no way that this either army could have moved anywhere they needed the horses to move the artillery they needed the horses to move the supplies and they needed the horses as well to move the wounded you think of how many horses there were on Meade's retreat from Gettysburg moving those ambulances Uh you know as you said the horses are the lifeblood of the army i mean people remember them people remember traveler and i think they know cincinnati and they know rienzi and they probably know little sorrel but it's all these horses that are you know we don't know their names and and maybe they didn't have names but that are the lifeblood of the army they certainly were they certainly were so it's fun to talk about these things yeah you know you don't hear about these horses all that much it's fun to sit down you know, talk about the, the horses, but also talk about the fate of the horses and how they had a real, real tough time mm-hmm. and, and appreciate. So when you see these horse statues, like the one you picture here behind you. Yeah, Fort you know, Riley, Kansas the video. is where this um, one's from. You know, they were, they, were, they were just as important, if not more important. 
if it wasn't for the horses, who knows how the world would have turned out. And that's that's not hyperbole. That that's that's fact, not fiction. Yeah. You know that that's a that's a real deal. So, what's coming down the pike for us, Mayor? After this episode drops on November thirteenth, we are taking the next week off. So oh, November twentieth, yes. we will not be releasing an episode, but we will back be back with you on November twenty seventh. So after Thanksgiving, the battle uh, that takes place before Franklin. <laughs> Which I can never remember the name of. Spring Mill? Spring Hills. Spring Hills? <laughs> There's too many battles of springs in them or hills. <laughs> That's why you're the best. Fuck you. We're going to have a live. I will be in whereabouts unknown as I travel around the country again. Yeah. Um, so I'll be, I'll be taking my show on the road again. Mm-hmm. Poor little mayor's going to be stuck in her little house. And yep. That's okay. But some someday we'll get her out. So anyway, so I think that's a good thing. So we have a lot of fun stuff coming down the pike. So I think this is a fun one to do as well. So yep. any uh, any final words from you there, Fincheroo? Anything exciting going on uh, that you want to get off your chest? No, not at all. I think this is a great episode episode to do i think we should dedicate it to all the horses in the civil war hit my glass yeah there we go all the uh-huh. all the mil- like literally mil- it was millions of horses that were needed in the civil war and just that the stories are really really interesting you can find the names of the horses online the generals had some really creative names for them and it's really cool to finally be able to talk about some of these horses and you know just and also the overview that we gave at the beginning so uh thank you for bringing it as always for this just happy part of the team. God. <laughs> anyway, so off we go. So um, have a great night. I appreciate everybody listening to another episode of this. We appreciate it. We're on, on to episode 65, which yep. episode 100 is on the horizon. It here. is. We're thinking about the big 100th episode yep. extravaganza here that'll take place in, I don't know. Whenever. I don't know. I'm not going to do the math on that and figure it out. That's less than a year, so we'll be ready to go. Yep. All right. So again, everyone have a great night. Have a great weekend. I look forward to uh talking to you on the other side see y'all later peace out bye